to instill what we need to remember, what really matters most. So I hope you'll come and you'll check that out next week. Also want to let you know that we started a blog, the B90X blog, and every single day I am doing something with that blog. Today is day seven, and I hope you will check that out and read that. But even more than that, I hope that as you read and you have questions and you have comments, that you will log in and you will share your comments and your questions. I can't tell you the number of times already through just six days of this that someone has asked a question or made a statement in the blog, and then I've talked to somebody else and they say, I'm really glad Becky said that, or I'm glad Jan said that, or I'm glad that Ernie said that. Okay, nobody said that about Ernie. I had to throw that in. But, but the point is, you help one another when you ask these questions and you study these questions and you ponder them. Uh, this morning's message, I really want to talk today about something that's really important to me, and I want to let you know where this message came from. I went to a conference with Jim and with Adam back in October, the Catalyst Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and one of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Andy Stanley, preached a sermon on this passage, really this sermon in many ways. Now, I've taken it, and I've changed it a little bit, and obviously you're going to see some illustrations from my life or our lives, but from an integrity standpoint, I want to let you know that I was really inspired, and I've really leaned heavily on this message that I heard at Catalyst, and it's a message about appetites. And I want you to think for just a moment about appetites. When you think appetites, what, what do you think of? Food, right? We almost always think of food. And, and that is one appetite. But this morning as we tackle this, I want to talk about a variety of different appetites. Yesterday I was at church, and I was, I, I'm not usually here on Saturdays, but it was kind of a crazy week, and I found myself doing this and doing that, and there was a funeral dinner going on downstairs. And Goldie Hedrick was making chicken and noodles. That's probably all I need to say about that. But I started getting more and more and more hungry. And finally, I had to just break down. I grabbed my coffee cup. I walked downstairs like I wanted a cup of coffee. And the next thing you know, I had a big old plate of chicken and noodles. That's my appetite speaking to me. But here's the point. There are a lot of appetites in our lives that drive us. And that can be a good thing. But if we don't understand our appetites, if we don't have control of our appetites, it can really lead us to make some pretty awful decisions. Think about the appetite for success. Some of you are tapped into that appetite for success, and that is good. If you're a student, you should want to achieve in the classroom. If you're a professional, you should want to find success vocationally. If you're an athlete, you should be hungry for success in the sport that you're a part of, whether it's a team sport or an individual sport. But if that appetite gets out of control, what started off as good things could become a not-so-good thing. You could be led to cheat if you're a student. If you're in business, you could be led to, to do things that are unethical or maybe even illegal. If you're an athlete, you might consider putting something into your body that could do terrible, terrible harm to you because that appetite is driving you. Think about the appetite for pleasure, and especially if you are a male. Now, right away, most of you think that I'm talking about sex. And that's a part of it. There's no doubt about that. But for many of us, if we're not careful, we find that appetite for pleasure driving us, and before long we're engaging in behaviors that aren't very healthy. Or all we think about is leisure-time activities. All we think about is the beach. Or all we think about is the boat. Or all we think about is vacation. And we start making choices that aren't very wise. Think about the appetite for possessions. 
how many of us are so susceptible to this. We have a car, and it's a good car, but we're already being driven for a better car, a newer car, a nicer car, or our house. We've got a house. God's provided our home for us. And yet we're already thinking, you know, if instead of a 1,500-square-foot home, I had a 2,500-square-foot home, I would be so much happier. That's not bad in itself, but it can drive us to make unhealthy and unwise decisions. Truth about appetite. Three things you need to understand. Number one, God created appetite. Men, teenagers, that appetite that you have for sex, God gave that to you, but he did it within the confines of his master plan. And so the appetite is good, but sin, mankind, has distorted those appetites. Um, that appetite for success is from God. But if taken to an extreme, it can actually pull you away from God. Secondly, appetite wants satisfaction now, right now. Never always want satisfaction now. I need to just confess something to you, and some of you that are close to me know this. Um, I am a compulsive, borderline addictive person by nature. And in some ways that can be a good thing, and in some ways that can be a bad thing. And one of the things that I had become uh, pretty locked into in, in my life here in Clinton was running. I lost a lot of weight right before I moved to Clinton in 2006, and Really, the primary way I did it is I ran about every day, two and a half, three, three and a half miles. And I watched what I would eat, drink a lot of water, all of that. But it was really the, the daily physical exercise. And about a year and a half ago, I had commented to Marla that, you know, I was having numbness in my arm and tingling. And she thought I was going to have a heart attack and made me go to the doctor. And we did an MRI. And they sat me down and they said, you've got mild to moderate degenerative arthritis. And, you know, you got two options, really. One, we can schedule neck surgery for you. I wasn't digging that at all. Dr. Williams said, you know, you can just stop running. That daily pounding on the pavement is what's really aggravating that. And he said, if I were you, I'd stop running. Well, for all of you, that's a no-brainer, right? Some of you would be glad if the doctor told you to do that. But for me, I really struggled with that. And a good friend challenged me to think about biking. And so I started biking. Marla and the kids bought me for Father's Day 09 a, a nice bike, and I loved that bike, and I biked some in the summer of 2009, but it was last spring, last April of 2010, that I really caught the fever. And I'm telling you, for a while, and Marla will attest to this, probably with a smile on her face, for a while, that's all that was really wrapped into my mind. It got to the point, it became so obsessive and so compulsive that I would skip supper with my family at times, because I needed the bike. I had that 15-mile, that 25-mile, that 20-mile bike that I needed to be a part of. And looking back on that today, I mean, I'm not going biking today, I can tell you that. That was really silly. But that was my appetite driving me. That appetite to be on that bike. That appetite to feel that achievement. And what started as a good thing, a healthy thing, I think became a negative. Appetites always want satisfaction now never later. And then finally, appetites always cry out for more. They always cry out for more. If you have an appetite for success, my guess is you'll never get to the point to where you say, hey, you know what? I live in a great house and I make a great salary. I'm going to just kick back and love life. That's not going to happen. 
Because the appetite for success is always going to drive you from there. Well, today's message comes from Genesis chapter 25. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles real quickly. And it really is a message about an uncontrolled appetite. And before we dive in there, I need to give you a pretty substantial amount of background information about this narrative. It's the story of two brothers, Esau and Jacob. And and as we dive into this, three things I want to do. I want you to better understand Esau and Jacob, better understand the concept of a birthright, better understand sibling rivalries and relationships. Well, Esau and Jacob were the grandsons of Father Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God sat down at the time with Abram and he said, Abram, I've got an unconditional covenant promise I'm pouring out on you. I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to make you a land, and I'm going to make you a blessing. And, and he did that. The Bible is the story of the fulfillment of that blessing being poured out from generation to generation to generation. Well, Esau and Jacob are the grandsons of Abraham. Abraham had a son by the name of Isaac. Many of you remember the story of Abraham. He was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar to prove his trust in God. This is Isaac. Isaac grew up, married a lady by the name of Rebekah, couldn't have babies for 20 years, finally got pregnant. Esau and Jacob are their children. Now, these two boys were as different as different could be. Who was Esau? Esau was the oldest brother. And here's how the text describes him. It says he became a skillful hunter, He was a man of the open country. He had hair all over his body. I'm not sure that's a good thing. They make it sound like it's a good thing. He was a man's man. And he was his father's favorite. Verse 28 says that Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. Well, who was Jacob? Jacob was much different. He was the younger brother. And here's what verse 27 says about him. He was a quiet man, and he stayed among the tents much different than his older brother Esau. Probably not so much of a man's man. Very connected with his mother. That was his primary source of relationship. Rebecca loved his son, Jacob. Can you already see the tension beginning to build between Esau and Jacob? Well, what about a birthright? We're going to talk about a birthright today. And most of the time, when we read Genesis, we confuse two terms, birthright and blessing. And most of the time, when you think Jacob and Esau, you think of the story of Jacob stealing Esau's blessing. That's going to take place two chapters later in chapter number 27. But in chapter 25, it's talk about the birthright. And the bottom line is, the birthright was not something that you could earn. The birthright was not something you could buy in in this time. You either were the oldest or you were not. Esau was the oldest. Jacob was not. That doesn't seem like a big deal in 2011, does it? In ancient Near Eastern times, huge deal. Enormous deal. If you were the firstborn, if you had the birthright, you received at least a double portion of of Papa's inheritance. At least double, sometimes triple or more. That means if you were in a rich family like Esau and Jacob were, you were the the oldest, you were going to be really rich someday. The second thing, and this is really cool, think about this, people. Think about your family for just a moment. Whenever the father died, and whenever there was a family powwow or a crisis, everyone would gather together, and if you had the birthright, they would all kind of sit down at your feet, and you would preside over it, and they would say, you know, Jordan did this, and Peyton did this, and blah, 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 blah. And then if you were the oldest and you had the birthright, guess what? You pronounced judgment 
And that settled it. There, there wasn't no appeal process. There wasn't no running to somebody else. In fact, do you remember the parable in the New Testament about money when a, a man goes to Jesus and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, the parable of the rich fool. That's out of this culture right here. Now, there's a third thing about birthrights that you need to understand. And that the birthright was believed to be, during this time, an unbelievable extended blessing from God to you for generation to generation, if you had the birthright. Are you getting the picture here? The birthright had incredible value. The birthright was something that was very much desired. Now, one more thing I want to do before we get to our text is I want to talk about sibling rivalries. We're talking about two brothers, an older brother, a younger brother. How many of you are the oldest child in your family? Anybody? All right. How, how about any youngest children? Any youngest? How about somewhere in the middle? We got any uh, Peter Brady's? Okay. All right. Raise your hands there. Okay. If you are not the oldest child, you probably have some sort of an envy or frustration with your oldest sibling that they might not even realize is my guess. And I'm just going to talk for a couple minutes about growing up in Champaign. When I was 16, my mom and dad, even though we really were not wealthy at all, bare, probably lower middle class is how I would describe my family, my parents brought me in right before my 16th birthday, and they said, we're going to buy a car, and you're going to get to drive that car. And I mean, I was just... I was loving life, okay? It turned out to be a 1976 Plymouth Grand Fury that was pea green in color. But you know what? I didn't care because I had a car. But they sat me down, and, you know, I expected the, the grades or the behavior speech. I didn't get that. They said, you're going to have this car, but here's what you're going to do for the next two years, your junior year and your senior year in high school. You're going to get up a little bit early every day, and you're going to drive your younger sister the, she went to a different school than I did, a private Christian school. You're going to drive her to school, and then you're going to make your way to Champaign Centennial every day. Can I tell you, in July of 1985, that seemed like a great deal to me. By about January of 1986, I wasn't digging it near as much. And here's the point. I never needed my little sister for anything. But she always, it seemed like, needed something from me. And what ends up happening, and I think sometimes the oldest doesn't even realize it, this resentment can start to build up. This, this desire can start to build up. And it can be unhealthy. Okay, let's go to the text. Genesis chapter 25. Let's start reading with uh, verse 29. It says, Once Jacob was cooking some stew, and Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, Quick! Let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. I am hungry. Verse 31, Jacob replied, First, what? Sell me your birthright. Now, i just got to stop right there. And I've got to just say, what a ridiculous request by Jacob. That's just crazy, isn't it? Sell me your, your birthright? I mean, Give me a ride to school. You know, let me hang out in your room and listen to your CD player. That's fine, but sell me your birthright. Verse 32. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? Let me read that again. I'm about to die. What good is the birthright? 
But Jacob said, swear to me first. And he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. And he ate and he drank. He got up and he left. And so Esau despised his birthright. That's got to be the most ridiculous trade in all of Scripture. I mean, I didn't think there was a worse trade than Brock for Broglio, but that's it right here. It's crazy. Trading your birthright for a bowl of stew. Is anybody with me? Is that just crazy? That's just ridiculous. See, the point of this story that I want you to grab, if you don't get anything else today, if you've been not paying attention or taking a nap or writing notes, grab this right here. Esau gave up all God had planned for him. He compromised his future, and he did it all for a simple bowl of stew. It would be really helpful at this point if we could go back in time, if we could be time travelers, and we could go back into time right before this trade takes, take take a quick 30-second timeout and sit down with Esau. Here's what I think I might say to him. I think I might say, Esau, my man, I know you're hungry. I know you're famished. I know you've been out doing the kill the deer thing and all that, and the stew smells good and all that, but I want you to understand the price that you're about to pay. About 450 years after this time, Esau, stay, stay focused with me here. 450 years later, your people are going to be in captivity in Egypt. And God's going to say enough is enough. And God's going to raise up a guy by the name of Moses. Say Moses with me, Esau. Moses. And as God gets ready to tell Moses how he's going to use him to to, to bring his people to freedom, here is how he's going to describe himself to Moses. He's going to say, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Esau. And my man, I know you're hungry, but you eat that bowl. But Esau, it's more powerful than even that. 2,000 years from now, the Messiah is going to come. His name is Jesus. And he's going to have disciples. And one of his disciples is going to be a guy by the name of Matthew. And Matthew is going to write a book about the life of Jesus. It's going to be called Matthew. They weren't real good at titles back in that time. But as Matthew writes his gospel, it's going to start like this. This is the story, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David son of Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Esau. And bro, I know you're hungry, but you eat that stew, and everything changes. The God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Esau, in exchange for a bowl of stew, you're willing to give that up? this and I think to myself, who in the world would make such a ridiculous deal? And you know the conclusion that I've come to this morning? You would. I would. For the right bowl of stew. You're sitting there saying, no, no, I, I would never do that. I'm too serious about my faith. That would never happen. I'm here to tell you today you might do the very same thing 
if it was the right bowl of soup. You may say, how are you connecting those dots? Here's how I'm connecting those dots. 20 plus years of ministry, I've witnessed person after person after person that did exactly that. They gave up their future. They gave up their good name. They gave up their reputation. They, they threw away the faith for a simple bowl of soup. You may say, why did that happen? Well, let me just, let me, let me talk psychology with you for a little bit this morning. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not the son of a psychologist. But do, do you know how impact bias works? Think about impact bias. Here's what impact bias is. It takes a simple appetite and it magnifies it to an incredibly unhealthy proportion. That car you think you have to have, guess what? It's still going to get you from point A to point B. You're still going to be paying three whatever for a, for a gallon of gas. That car really won't make you happy. You think it will, and then you start making the payments, and you think, what in the world was I doing? That house you have to have that's going to bring you happiness. You know what? At some point, you're going to have to fix the roof. At some point, the furnace is going to go out. At some point, the, the carpet's going to be no more. Impact bias. It magnifies an appetite to an unhealthy proportion. Number two, consider focalism. You know what focalism is? Focalism takes a single focus in our mind and it blurs everything around you out. This happens at my house all the time. I'm watching the Illini. I'm focused on the Illini. Marla's talking. Jordan's talking. Peyton's talking. It doesn't really happen at our house, does it? Well, once in a while it happens. But the point is this. All you get focused on is that one thing. And if you let your appetite get out of control, focalism can drive you to a very, very unhealthy state of mind, to very unhealthy decisions. And so I have a question for everyone today. You have to answer it. Just do it to yourself. Don't do it out loud. Here's the question. What's your bowl of soup? What's your bowl of stew? What are you trying to talk yourself into? What are you contemplating right now that your spouse is uncomfortable with or maybe doesn't even know about? What are you doing that you sure hope I don't find out about or your friends find out about or anybody finds out about? What's your bowl of stew? And as you contemplate that, maybe you need to take a time out, that 30-second time out. And you need to realize it's just a bowl of stew. It's just a bowl of stew. I can't tell you the number of times someone's called me, someone's come to visit me, and they've made an absolute mess of their life, and their words to me were, I had no idea the consequences, the pain, the impact. A simple bowl of And so how do we avoid Esau's compromise? How do we avoid Esau's failure? I, I think the answer is really simple if we just think about it. Here's what it is. You have to reframe the appetite. You reframe the appetite. I'm a big believer that we are called to be big picture Christians. You're called to be big picture. I'm called to be big picture. And I think it would be really healthy for you today, this week, this month, if you sat down and you started asking yourself questions like, what do I want my life to look like 10 years from now? 
and how will that bowl of stew impact me? Start asking yourself questions like, what, what kind of legacy am I prepared to leave for my, for my children, for my grandchildren? Maybe you don't even have children or grandchildren yet. And how will that bowl of stew impact my legacy? See, friends, bottom line, you have no idea what the Lord has in store for you. Now, I just, man, I feel compelled to share with our teenagers this morning. You have no idea what God has in store for you. I believe God has a great future in store for each and every one of you. And so the next time that appetite is pushing you to eat that bowl of stew, I've got two challenges as we close today. Refrain. God, thank you for today. And God, I thank you for your word. The Bible tells us your word is living and active. And I want your word to be real, to be alive for me, for us, as we study together for these next few months. Thank you for Jesus, your son, the hope that he brings. And this morning is my prayer that Son is Lord and Savior today. Their heart will burn right now with the desire to make that decision. But Father, even more important for so many of us who are Christians today is that call to reframe. That call to think about five years from now, ten years from now, our legacy. And as we look at our life and decisions that we're making today,